Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. With all the constant reminders of the things that divide us these days, there's one thing that all of us have in common. Death. We will all die. It's just about impossible to wrap your mind around the idea that someday you just won't be here anymore. But how in the world do you plan for something that is unfathomable that way? And yet, as my next guest writes, planning for our own demise is the best and only way to empower ourselves when it comes to leaving this world. We want to spend the hour today talking about death and talking about it in terms that maybe make us a little uncomfortable. Think of the way that we avoid this subject, not only when it comes to ourselves, but when it comes to people who are close to us. We want to talk about the things that we can control around death. We want to talk about the way our healthcare system influences the end of our lives and how perceptions of death differ and change over time. Joining me now to kick off this conversation is Jonathan Moreno. He is a bioethicist and professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He is co-author of the book, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, But Nobody Wants to Die, Bioethics and the Transformation of Healthcare in America. Jonathan Moreno, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. So you have an entire chapter in your book that's titled Uneasy Deaths, and I want to read an excerpt from the beginning of that chapter. Um, You say, how do we want to die? The question is both strange and obvious. It does not ask us whether, but how. The two questions are yoked together in the human psyche. Our primordial will to live and anticipatory anxiety over dying easily overwhelm our ability to address how we want to die. The irony, of course, is that we can exercise some degree of control over how, not whether we will die, yet we often find it hard to move beyond the shadow question that might somehow promise eternal life to the practical one that asks us to consider how we want to approach that circumstance of our death. When we do thoughtfully probe ourselves and our loved ones about how we want to die, we discover that our preferences differ, sometimes quite unexpectedly. Talk about the trouble that we have planning for our deaths. Steve, first of all, I want to tell you, I really enjoyed hearing you read that paragraph. <laughs> interesting to hear somebody else read. Uh, and I have <laughs> Read your own audio. words, right? <laughs> no, it's interesting. And uh, uh, I'm happy with the paragraph, I must say, and with the way you read it. <laughs> it's, it's nicely written. <laughs> uh, so uh, Americans mostly died in ho- in, at home before World War II. Uh, and there was a fairly direct experience of death, uh, children would see their grandparents die, uh, and um, the resources of the, of the household would be devoted to uh, helping to, you know, keep the grandparents, or in some cases parents, comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, if children were ill, and there was a lot more childhood illness before the Second World War than there is now, because of antibiotics and vaccines that we have now, children would die at home. And, uh, again, the resources of the home would be marshaled to do the best people could to keep people comfortable. And, and, uh, you know, that was, uh, in some ways, um, a good thing, although awful in each case, because it did give us a kind of connection, a living connection to death and familiarity with it. 
After the war, the good news is there was a lot less of that sort of death from you know, traditional diseases like diphtheria and, and, and rubella and so forth, rabies, because of vaccines and antibiotics. Uh, but it has created a situation in which the experience of death is mostly uh, very technological, and hospitals are you know, the most high-tech places there are in any community, by far. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so the whole experience of death and uh, has changed and and you know when you it, typically we say you know oh, gee, I went to see my friend in the ICU and I couldn't even get to her because of all the all the bells and whistles and all the technology and all the could not believe all the tubes and so forth um, so that our our traditional and probably evolved disability to connect ourselves to the reality of our own death um, has been you might say exacerbated by the fact that we really are disconnected from the deaths of others more in our in our high-tech world um, than we were before mm. so, so so you talk about the decisions we make to prolong our lives or the lives of our loved ones at any cost uh, and of course right now that's a debate that I think we're having in very small spaces with our loved ones uh, a lot, right? This idea, yeah. um, this idea of how much would you want to be done on your own behalf, or how much would you do on someone else's to make sure that they're quote unquote still alive, but, yeah. but maybe suffering and only delaying the inevitable. Um, talk about that intersection between the healthcare system that we have and the medical advances that we oh. enjoy, and this question of of how we leave. Yeah, the um, so part of this story, and everything you said is is, is part of the story. And a background of the story, I think, besides the technology, is the way that our relationships with our doctors have changed. Um, I was teaching in medical school twenty years ago when a a physician colleague came in to me with a somewhat bemused expression on his face. He said, I just uh, seeing a patient, and the patient had printed off this page from the Internet. Uh, and, and this is what the patient said I should be giving him for his problem. <laughs> uh, and so there's been, in that moment, I thought, wow, there's, you know, this is the power dynamic between doctors and patients that has really shifted. Uh, again, in the last 50 or 60 years, when, when, when doctors were probably at their most, both their most um, admired and, technically speaking, the most powerful at the same time in the 50s, when you had magic bullets like penicillin coming, beginning to emerge. But the more that doctors can predictably do to extend our lives or just to intervene in our health care with, with practical consequences, uh, the better the technology gets, the more effective it gets, the more people would like to know what their doctors have in mind for them. You know, what are, their, what are my options, and how can I get that good stuff? And it might be that what I think is the good stuff is not what my doctor thinks is the good stuff. Um, especially as we approach the end of life, we've entered an era that decades ago a, a bioethicist called halfway technologies, so that in, in many cases, we can keep people alive, uh, but not restore them to their previous quality of life. Mm. And I'm not talking about 
um, you know, rehabilitation for a broken bone. Uh, I'm talking about the physical processes that are involved in being alive, uh, but separate in, in some, sometimes from the subjective cognitive states that we associate with being alive in the world. And that's, that, that is something new. People, people did not um, stay alive historically without having a level of awareness or cognition. That is something that our technology now can do. And we, we talk in the book about famous cases, you know, the one uh, that happened in the mid-1970s in New Jersey, a young, young woman named Karen Quinlan, um, who collapsed at a party. She hadn't eaten. She'd been using drugs and alcohol. And she was kept alive uh, with tube feeding for more than nine years. She was in a vegetative state. Uh, and that takes us, what, 30 years later to the highly politicized case, or 40 years later, of Terry Schiavo in Florida. Yes. And this disagreement now that uh, human beings had never experienced these disagreements before. Who has the power to decide whether a machine that breathes for you should be detached? Who has the, who has the authority to decide that you shouldn't be fed through tubes anymore. Uh, how can we tell whether you are aware of anything in your surroundings you know, or not? Uh, and then, of course, for decades, we've had a shift in much of the world, uh, like in the United States, from deciding that you're dead when your brain stops working, uh, as compared to traditionally you're dead when your hearts and lungs stop working. So we... These... Um, these rapid changes uh, in technology and in, you might say, the, the politics of the doctor-patient relationship, uh, and many other factors as well, including we haven't even talked about the cost of health care. All of these factors have kind of converged, um, and we find ourselves you know, without a, a framework. We've had to, to really rush to put together an, uh, an ethical framework to deal with these things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with Jonathan Moreno. He's a bioethicist and professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He is co-author of the book, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, But Nobody Wants to Die, Bioethics and the Transformation of Healthcare in America. We're talking about end of life, something that we will all face, something that all of our loved ones will face, and how we prepare for that eventuality, how we make sure that the things that we want to happen when we die, at least the things that we can control, are the things that actually happen and how we determine what the planning for those things should look like. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what are your plans for your own death. Have you made any of those decisions yet? And if you've lost a loved one, we'd especially like to hear from you about the kind of decisions you've been forced to make for other people when they die. We'd also like to hear from you if you've just been putting all of this off and not thinking about it. Why do you think it's so difficult to make those plans, to think about these things and talk about them with the people who are closest to us? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDE Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will work you into the conversation. Let's start with Marilyn in Oak Park. Marilyn, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Hello, Stephen. Now i got to hang up this phone. Hang on just a second. Okay. Uh, I think I think she hung that phone up. Uh, <laughs> Marilyn, call us back, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll get you back you. into the mix here. Uh, let's go to Tom in northwest Detroit. Tom, what's on your mind? Yeah, hi, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Hi to your guests. You know what? I mean, financially, you know, all of that stuff's taken care of, you know, with the investments and, you know, what in, in the house and property and what have you. But uh, you know what? I mean, death is the, <laughs> it's the final game in life. I mean, you know, and, and that's it. But um, so when you think about preparing for that, though, Tom, what do you think about and, and what are some of the things that you do? Well, you know what? I mean, it really it really makes you, you know, not so much that you can feel it, but it really makes you think it's kind of like this is going to happen. You know, it's not like you just stop. Not that, not that you don't worry about it, but I mean, it's like it's kind of like right there in your face. You know, you're planning basically for your demise, okay? And in terms of what, from where I am now to whenever that date comes, uh, you know, things are basically, they're, they're taken care of. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it really brings it home when you have to do something like that. And, I mean, even when you, like, say, go to uh, funerals of, like, say, loved ones, especially, you know, like relatives, like a mother or a father. I lost my father when I was 23 years old, and that's the day I, I grew up. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you know, that thing, it's just like, bam! You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's like you really understand and realize this is it. Yeah, yeah. Tom, I uh, appreciate the call. Yeah, the prospect of death really focuses the mind like nothing else. It does. And for good reason, because the key factor is what is my, my, what is my selfhood? And it's very hard to think of ourselves, excuse me, it's very hard to think of ourselves uh, somehow not persisting in the world. And recently brain scientists uh, have actually found some some mechanisms, some processes that help to account for that. Uh, They can actually do pretty simple tests of recognition of of images and words uh, associated with ourselves, and we don't see the words that are so... um, associated with our own demise. Mm, mm. It's, and yet, of course, cognitively, we can overcome that. You know, we can, we can sort of, in theory, talk about our deaths uh, the way you and, are, you, know, you and I are right now uh, and, your, and your listeners. Um, but at some gut level, uh, probably evolution has prevented us from completely uh, ex- accepting it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tom, thanks again for the call and the comments. Uh, AK on Twitter says, sounds like we need an analog to midwives and doulas for home dying. Shamans, maybe. Uh, We're going to hear. There are are such people. Um, Um, We're going to hear from one of them, actually, in the third segment today. Someone who's working on that in Ann Arbor here in Michigan. In the days before um, hospice, Right around the time hospice was getting started, in fact, my father died. Uh, this is 1974. He was 85 years old, uh, and um, we found somebody because he didn't. He was a physician. He didn't want to die in a hospital. Uh, he'd seen, seen enough of hospitals, um, and we found a, a, a woman through the grapevine who basically did that. And I think that's very much a part of our history, but it's one that we also have lost, you know, ironically, because we're so good at keeping people alive in hospitals. 
but she had no credentials. You know, she her only credential was her experience taking care of older people wow. when they died, and she had a reputation. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, she came from Texas. We were living in upstate New York, so this shows how you know the networks can function. But I, I think it is a very interesting observation, uh, and. Um, there have always been, as, as you suggest, people who have done that. But it's, you know, it's hard for them to get insurance to to, make, to, to help at the bedside in a modern hospital. Sure, sure. Uh, again, thanks for the call and the comments. Tom, let's go to Maya on the west side of Detroit. Maya, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, my mother passed uh, in the August in Kangasola. Um And it was very, very difficult um, for us, particularly my daughter. But I found that I had to talk to her before she passed my daughter because she would hear everyone saying die and death. And she's looking at me like, what's happened? What is it? Um, and I had to explain it to her. Mm. But we were so disconnected from death, even though it happens to everything and everybody. Um, I think one thing that did kind of prepare her a teeny bit was uh, like having hamsters and gerbils or fish because they die, mm-hmm. you know? And her learning that they're not coming back, they're never coming back, um, it's hard for me even to grasp. Sure. But it did kind of prepare for a little bit, but we're so disconnected. It's like taboo to talk about death, but everyone does it. It mm-hmm. happens to everything. Wow. Um, I feel we're away from the traditional, um, you know, mourning. You know, we expect people to get right back to work, and we expect people to snap out of it like a week later. And I'm still a mess, an absolute wreck. Wow. But yes. <laughs> so, so Maya, we should we should say for our listeners that uh, your mom was someone they probably know if they've been longtime listeners here at uh, WDET and Kenge Zola. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm really yeah, glad you. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 she's someone whose voice I remember uh, from this radio station from when I was uh, a kid here in in Detroit, and uh, oh. and it it really affected all of us here at WDET when she died. Oh man, yeah, this, this year. I appreciate it. Yeah, she, yeah, she was something else. Yeah, yeah, she really was. Uh, Maya, yeah. I really appreciate. Really appreciate the call uh, and you sharing that experience with us. Uh, Jonathan Moreno, before I get you, uh, before I let you go, I, I want you to address just a little bit about what Maya's talking about in terms of sort of sharing uh, this this talk about death with younger people. Uh, she was talking about uh, talking to her five year old about these these things. What's too early to think about death and planning for it? Well, I'm not a child psychologist, um, uh, so I'm going to be careful here. But um, what what was said was is so right on the point that uh, if you try to conceal these things from children, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily help. You know, they will have questions, uh, and and we do know that children as young as five do uh, have sense of mortality already. Uh, they have fears and. Um, the the child psychologists that I have spoken to and, and read uh, seem to agree that it is worse to talk around the subject and try to conceal things that really can't be concealed than it is to patiently explain that everybody dies, but the point is to have a good life while you're here and to take care of other people. Mm. 
Okay, Jonathan Moreno, bioethicist and professor at the University of Pennsylvania, co-author of the book, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, But Nobody Wants to Die, Bioethics and the Transformation of Healthcare in America. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks Thank for you, being Stephen. with us. Yeah. All right. Up next, we're going to continue this conversation uh, and talk with a woman who wanted to help build community for herself and others throughout the grieving process. So she started a website. Stay with us on the the phones here. Rhonda in Ypsilanti, Annette in West Bloomfield, Ashley in Royal Oak. We'll get to you as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We're talking this hour about death and how we think about death, how we prepare for death, how we decide to control the things that we can about how we leave this world. What are you doing to prepare for death? Are you doing anything? Are you thinking about it? Are you talking with the people closest to you about how you would like to die? Are you talking with the people closest to you about how they might like today? Uh, we want to hear from you here on the show all hour about this subject. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. And now I want to welcome someone else into the conversation. Her name is Rebecca Sofer, and by the time she was in her mid-30s, both of her parents had died. While most people in Rebecca's social circle hadn't yet experienced this type of loss, she did have one other friend in the same situation. At first, the duo started a monthly dinner meetup for people who were dealing with the loss of a parent. And soon after, their website, modernloss.com, was born. Rebecca Sofer, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me on the line, Stephen. Great to be here. Yeah. So uh, first, tell us about this experience that led up to the creation of modern loss and what you're experiencing now that uh, you're sharing this experience with so many other people. Sure. Um, so I, this was not anything that I ever imagined myself working in. <laughs> there are a lot of really amazing empathic people who have the foresight to realize that we are all going to experience grief and loss and not to, you know, be a downer, but we're also all going to die. So, um, and they are, 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 actively willing to work in that field to help others along the way. I was not one of those people. I just wanted to be um, a thoughtful TV producer. I was a producer at the Colbert Report. I had just graduated Columbia Journalism School. I was really starting out in my life. And I had just turned 30, and I was uh, working in political satire. And during that time, uh, I went on a family camping trip, And on the way back from that trip, after my parents had dropped me off at my apartment, my mother was killed in a car crash, and my father was in the car with her. He survived, but I was freshly 30. I was at the onset of what I thought was going to be, you know, a long career in a specific type of journalism. And all of a sudden, the rug was pulled out from under my feet. My most important person in the world 
was gone. Mm. And this was someone who I had full expectation of being in my life for a really long time and to see me through hitting a lot of milestones that I still had yet to achieve, you know, career milestones, partner milestones, <laughs> getting a dog milestones, having kids. And so all of a sudden, my life started in the after and that was before loss and after loss. And so when I was 30, I had a dead mom. And by the time I was 34, my dad died from a heart attack. So I had no parents above ground by the age of 34. And during those three, three and a half years, it became very evident to me that grief is an incredibly solitary experience mm -hmm. when people are not willing to open up about their narratives, their truths, their messes, because we're scared that we're going to be judged for doing grief wrong, for just messing it up. And what I realized was that it took a lot more energy for me to bottle up around the people surrounding me, like my coworkers, my friends, a lot of whom really hadn't experienced profound loss at that point. And that's why I was struggling so much. So there were very few people who I felt really got it in my life. And once I started opening up about how I was really doing and what a mess it really was. And within the mess, there was a lot of humor. There was a lot of hopefulness. There was a lot of hope for resilience because I was only, you know, 30 when my mom died. I was hoping that it wasn't all over for me, but I didn't have any examples of how it wasn't. And so it became very clear that loss is best experience in a communal way. Hmm. But our culture doesn't like talking about grief. It doesn't like talking about loss. It, your, your show is about death today. It doesn't like talking about death. Um, these are very uncomfortable topics, but they're topics. This is like the one common denominator that every single human being and living being shares. So why aren't we talking about it? Hmm. And so that's what Modern Loss came out of, which was my personal isolation. And then by extension, the exhale that I felt when I met my friend Gabby Berkner, who had also suffered her own profound losses. And we just became really good friends because there was this instant intimacy there. We just got where the other was coming from. And we could talk about anything under the sun. And we had inherent empathy for the other person. And so we wanted to start what was initially a website six years ago that shared very candid, very open, very narrowly focused and highly curated and edited, very high quality narratives about people's various experiences with the long arc of grief, not just in the first year, but every year thereafter, because grief is a 24-7 thing that takes on different forms every single year. And also within these narratives, we want to show the resilience that every single person has. And by extension, that's when you build a community. And that's when you spread this burden of personal grief around to thousands and thousands of people to help you carry it. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We get a lot of people who want to participate in this conversation. Let's go to Rhonda in Ypsilanti. Rhonda, Hi. welcome to Detroit Hi, Stephen. Today. How are you? Hey. Um, my dad passed away in July, and um, just thinking about, you know, both of your guests and talking about, like, how you want to die and the things that you have to prepare for. And I have to say that my dad was very clear about never wanting heroic measures to prolong his life, um, and that was time that we got to spend with him, connecting with him in a very intimate way. Um, I also had his power of attorney, and so I had to make a lot of decisions for him. Um, 
and my, um, you know, after the fact that we, we discovered how well my dad prepared to care for my mom after his death. And so there's all these aspects of it. And then you swirl the grief into it and that you've got to keep moving forward in the midst of that pain um, and helping others. You know, it's just, it, you know, my heart is broken. Uh, he, he was my dude. He was the person that I, you know, you know, fix my hot water heater with. He was the person that I was proud to call when I told him I put a new gas line in my house for the mm. new dryer, and I don't get to do that anymore, you know. And so there's a lot of preparation, and I think it's, it is important to acknowledge the grief that still happens in the midst of the business of it all. Yeah, so so Rhonda, how, how are you finding places to, to, to be able to express that grief and sort of feel empathy and compassion from other people mm-hmm. who, who might be going through the same thing? Well, I think one of the places is that, you know, I, 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 don't allow, I don't allow myself to push away the feelings that I have when I think of him. And he's always on my mind, you know, his picture's on my computer. And so when I look at the picture, you know, there is this sinking feeling that happens in me that's like, oh, right, he's gone. Mm. Um, but then I also remember, you know, the really amazing life that he gave us. I mean, he exposed us to things that most people say, well, black people don't do that. It's like, well, we did. We camped. We went whitewater rafting. We went skiing. We, you know, did all these things that it was because of my dad and my mom's commitment to exposing us to stuff that really those are the memories that I hold on to now. And You know, I'm working on helping my niece make it through. She's really struggling really hard um, because her grandfather was really, she was really close to my dad. So it's just, I think, allowing space for the grief, allowing other people to grieve, and also making room for the fact that those coexist with all the really wonderful things that you remember about the person. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Rhonda, I really appreciate the call and uh, you sharing your experience with uh, us and the listeners here. Um, Thank you for doing this show. Sure, sure. Uh, let's go to Ashley in Royal Oak. Ashley, what's on your mind? Hi. Thank you for taking my call, Stephen. Uh-huh. Um, I had my aunt uh, re- recently passed away. Actually, it will be it's a year this month that she passed away. Um, and me and my me and my aunt weren't very close, but it was still, you know, a hard blow to my family to lose her. She struggled with alcoholism like most of her adult life. And um, because of her dealing with that disease of addiction, she didn't take care of the necessary things that she probably should have took care of. And I, I, I really won't understand why she didn't do it, but she didn't even leave, you know, her daughters anything, a will or anything, like take care of her take care of the family once, you know, she passed away. And it was really um, a disheartening and disillusioned experience losing my aunt, but I've always kind of struggled with the idea of what what to do with myself financially if anything was to happen to me. A lot of people don't really consider it because they may feel like financially they might not have that option. But um, it, it just has really given me something to think about in terms of death, not just the financial aspect, but just mm. the emotional toll it takes on you, you know, you know, not being prepared. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ashley, I, I appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Uh, Rebecca Sofer to re- re- react to the things that we just heard from Rhonda and from Ashley. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like 
<clears throat> both of them have uh, had such profound losses. And I just want to tell both of you, if you're still listening, my heart is with yours. These are incredibly deep losses. And what Rhonda said was like, he was my person, right? He was the one that I called when I put a new gas line in the house. This is what it is. People, I think after that first month or that first year, I think it's more convenient for us to consider somebody who's lost someone as like they're in a, a little bit of an easier stage. They're in a lighter stage of grief right now. But the fact of the matter is, is that grief is on no timeline whatsoever. That whole um, stages of grief is not meant for the Kubler-Ross stages. <laughs> that, that wasn't meant for people who have experienced grief. That right. was meant for people who were faced with their, their own deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, the stages of grief are, sure, maybe there are seven of them or five, but they come any day whenever they want to. And oftentimes, the second year of grief can be incredibly more difficult than the first year because it's when it's and really clear that that person is actually really gone. They're not just away for one Christmas or one New Year's or one birthday or one graduation. They're actually not going to be at any of those moving forward. And so I think that what became clear to me with these two women is that it's just really important for people to remember that even though that magical first year has passed, that doesn't mean that these people aren't still missing their person, the person that they would have called when they got a new mortgage, that they would have called to really support them. Because there are a lot more just everyday experiences than there are birthdays or holidays. And so that's what we want to also kind of achieve at Modern Loss, which is not just catharsis and community and a movement for people who have and are experiencing deep grief, but also we really want to inject empathy in people who are supporting and loving people who have had grief and don't know what to do, because the truth of the matter is, is that it's going to make it easier for them when they're faced with it. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about death and how we prepare for it. We're going to keep Rebecca Sofer with us, and we're going to welcome somebody who's an end-of-life doula trainer in Ann Arbor, somebody who is also working in this space to help people grapple with the end of our lives. Stay with us and stay with us on the phone. Cynthia in Detroit, Annette in West Bloomfield, Adrian in Detroit, and Marilyn in Oak Park. You're back with us. We will get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. We're talking this hour about death and how we prepare for it, how we prepare ourselves for the end of our own lives, and how we prepare to deal with the ends of the lives of people close to us. It's something that we don't often like to talk about, let alone prepare for. We're talking today about some of the things that we ought to be contemplating, some of the things that we ought to be doing to make this inevitable part of life uh, an easier part of our lives. My guests are Rebecca Sofer. She is co-founder of the website Modern Loss and co-author of a book called Modern Loss, Candid Conversation About Grief, Beginner's Welcome. Uh, And we're also joined now by Mary Lynn Rush, who is an end-of-life doula trainer with Lifespan Doulas, as well as a home funeral guide and green burial consultant in Ann Arbor. Mary Lynn, 
Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, Before we get to calls, and we still have lots of people who want to participate in this conversation, and we will get to you. Uh, Mary Lynn, I want to have you talk about this idea of natural burials and green burials, uh, the work you're doing as a home funeral guide. These are developments in areas that I think mark the space of change around end of life right now, things that uh, people are thinking about that maybe they didn't think about five or 10 years ago even. Uh, Absolutely. And I want to comment first on how much I appreciated listening to Jonathan and Rebecca. And um, my heart goes out to Maya and Mm -hmm. the loss of her mother in Kenge. Um, And Rhonda's comments about planning ahead and Ashley's comments um, and Rebecca's comments about forming community. I think that's what we're talking about is the importance of preparation and forming community around this. And those are all the things that I do in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are changing the way they want to do death, if you will. Um, I think, you know, with 10,000 people turning 65 every day um, <laughs> and baby boomers um, changing a lot of things in the world, um, we are uh, looking at the ways we've done things and realizing that's not giving me meaning anymore. And one of the biggest things that people are changing is wanting to have a more um, more control over how um, we celebrate someone's life and how we uh, do disposition, if you will, burial mm-hmm. or cremation or all the other options that are out there. So. so yeah, People are asking about green burial. They're asking about green funeral. And I, I have to separate out funeral options from burial options. Sure. That's two separate things. So home funeral and green burial are two different things. And that's how I got into this field after retiring from home birth midwifery years ago. Um, was uh, I, I was doing presentations in the community and um, and letting people know that it's, it's legal. That was the biggest question. Mm. And that it's safe and that it's actually very meaningful and it's not morbid, and it helps you feel, uh, it, it helps you move through grief in a different way when you can have that kind of control and make yeah. those choices. Yeah. Uh, you've also started the Death Cafe in right. Ann Arbor, which sounds kind of dark, but it's actually a, a kind of a, a bright space, right? This is, this is a way of creating community exactly. for people who are dealing with these issues. Exactly. People come to Death Cafe. There's actually a Warren Death Cafe. There's a uh, West Bloomfield Death Cafe, and there's two in Ann Arbor. And you can go on deathcafe.com, and all of them are supposed to be registered there. And there's many that are happening all over the country. There's been, since it started about eight years ago, there's been over 8,000 in like 50 different countries and more than 200 cities across the U.S. Um, People are not able to talk with their family sometimes. Some, Some of your callers mentioned that, that that people didn't plan ahead or whatever, and people were wanting to change uh, that. So it's like a practice session. <laughs> uh, kids come who say, I can't talk to my parents. They think I'm being, you know, giving up on them. And parents come and say, I can't talk to my kids. They think I'm being morbid. Healthcare providers come and say, I can't talk to my patients because I'm afraid they'll fear I'm abandoning them and vice versa. Patients want to talk and their doctors won't. So it's, we're all practicing about talking about death, which is the hardest thing that everybody has been mentioning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you also train end-of-life doulas, people who work with families who are caring for a loved one who's near the end of their lives. When most people hear that word doula, of course, mm-hmm. they think of birth, mm-hmm. which is the opposite end of mm-hmm. the spectrum. Um, talk about how this kind of person can be helpful both at the beginning 
and the end of our lives. The same model of care, the doula model of care, helps families in transition at the beginning and at the end when you're welcoming a new person or when you're saying goodbye to somebody. You're not usurping the role of any of the medical care providers on the team. You're not you know, stepping in and telling people what to do. You're leaving your own shoes at the door. You're honoring them from where they're coming from and helping them find the resources and the, and the skills at forming a circle of support just like Jonathan mentioned early on, the woman coming from Texas to New York, mm-hmm. um, stepping in not um, to do, but to support and to be willing to talk about it. And then somebody who knows about what's available in the community, helping people put together a list of people. You know, a lot of times people will say, uh, let me know if I can do anything to help. But, you know, it's really hard to delegate and it's really hard to even know what you need sometimes. And a doula can say, I'm observing that you could use some help here. Who do you think might you might be able to, you know, contact? Let's put together a list of people and, and let's let's make this experience as good as it can be for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Cynthia in Detroit. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for welcoming me. Mm-hmm. I... um. I call in for two reasons. One, I'm a probate lawyer, and I try to help people get their documents together, their wills, their trust, their durable power of attorneys for financial and medical, and help people that way in planning and um, encourage everyone to do that. And I think that's a good way to at least start the conversation um, with death preparation. Mm -hmm. And um, I try to remind people that it's, it's better to do these things when you're well as opposed to when they're sick. And if you do it when you're well and able, it, it, it's, it's, an easier, it's an easier process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, personally, um, I lost my father when I was in law school, and I lost my mother around 11 years ago. And, in fact, currently um, all of my aunts, all of my uncles are passed away. And it's hard for me to believe that I'm supposed to be at the big kids' table, and I was, you know, as opposed to the little kids' table right. when the holidays come. I look around at my sisters and my cousins, it's like, oh, this is really happening. Right, right. But it's really a shock. But uh, but two points. One, with regard to the documents, a recent test uh, study said that maybe 67% of white people have their papers together and a little less than 50% of black people have their papers together. Mm. So I think... You know, and with 70 being a C, generally speaking, we're failing across the board. Right. So people really need to get engaged and talk about these things and plan and plan early. And I think that would be helpful. In the case of my mother, right out of law school, with the death of my father, I said, well, you know, who do you want to speak at your funeral? And what (laughs) songs are important? And what are these awards on these walls that, you know, which really mean something? Are they just there because of your career? And over time, some of the people passed away that she wanted to speak at her funeral, and she got more accolades. So if people look at it as an ongoing thing, I think that would be helpful. And about grief, I went to counseling, and I was told, I heard briefly one of your guests talk about the stages of grief, Mm -hmm. and I was told that it takes six to 18 months to, quote-unquote, get over the death of a loved one, and 
I think it could be longer than that, sure. depending upon how close you were to them. Where you know, physically, in the case of my mother, I lived right next door, so it's still very difficult, sure. you know, yeah. because I'm still in the same residence next door to where she used to live. Right. And um, I would just tell people, I think for the first year, realize those firsts are tough. Yeah. First birthday, first Christmas, first holiday. Um, and, and don't I think, beat yourself up on it. And I think know that it's going to the idea of taking the time you need is is the thing that uh, that that maybe gets lost in some of the discussion about that. My dad died when I was fourteen years old. Uh, that's now thirty five years ago. I wouldn't say that I'm over that. I'm not sure I will ever be over that. I mean, uh, certainly it. it lives with me differently now than it did uh, then when I was a teenager. But uh, this idea of getting over things, I think, maybe maybe misstates what, what we're trying to work with. Uh, Rebecca Sofer, I wonder what, what, what you think about this idea that Cynthia is raising of preparation in the legal sense, perhaps easing the grief on the other end or maybe sort of putting it in a context that we can deal better with. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, look, I don't think it eases the grief. I think when you lose someone you really love, mm-hmm. you're going to grieve them deeply. And I, I also, um, you know, personally don't ascribe to the phrase getting over a loss. I don't think it's anything you ever get over. I think you move through it and you're constantly moving through it in different ways for the rest of your life. Um, and some of those, you know, days are, are totally fine and full of joy. It's just that you, you're constantly living with the loss of somebody you love. When we're talking about being prepared, um, you know, for your own death, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my, my, I, I had a bit of a mess when my dad died. Um, my mother, no one thought my mom was going to die before my dad. And so her, her will was not organized in a way that um, I think was as thoughtful as it would have been had they really sat down and said, you know, anything can happen. Let's just prepare in the event of both of our deaths and let's do it separately and then jointly. And so in the end, there was a bit of a mess. Um, I would say 80% was really well organized, but 20% was um, kind of confusing, left up in the air, you know, opaque, um, left to us to make big decisions about and that definitely uh exacerbated the the i would say the the anxiety and the trauma of especially those first few months when i would have much rather been simply focusing on the fact that oh god like i felt awful like i just wanted to be in my own black hole of grief mm-hmm. i didn't want to be in my black hole of grief and also trying to figure out some legal things or health things or trying to you know figure out where certain papers were located that really did you know i called it um, an insult to injury because mm-hmm. the injury was the grief and the insult was that i also had to deal with with so much paperwork and bureaucracy mm-hmm. i personally um the first thing I said to my husband when I found out I was pregnant with our first child five, almost six years ago, and this sounds kind of crazy, was we have to figure out who gets him if we both die. And he was like, Let, well, we're having a baby. Let's spend 30 seconds being really excited about this. <laughs> and But my mind went back to that feeling that I had when I realized that I was, you know, technically an orphan that I didn't have either living parent and how lonely that felt and how isolating that felt. And just so it's funny when you, when you really go through this grief, you are acutely aware of what you went through 
in the aftermath, given how prepared or unprepared your loved one was, and you want to do it better for your loved ones. So, yeah, that's my experience. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, Mary Lynn. And let's talk about the gift it is to your loved ones when you plan ahead. Therefore, they're not having to make decisions that they wonder if you would have wanted, but they're just enacting your decisions. So that goes for both before death, the type of medical care you want, and the funeral planning. And Michigan is now caught up with most other states in that you can designate a funeral representative now. It doesn't have to be the next of kin giving permission. Um, And sometimes you don't even have had contact. You haven't had contact with your next of kin for a very long time, you can designate somebody, if you do the paperwork properly, who you can sit down and talk with. And just filling out paperwork is not enough, folks. That's another thing that I educate people about is advanced care planning. It's the conversation that goes along with filling out the paperwork that's showing better results and actually having your wishes followed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, thanks for the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Annette in West Bloomfield. Annette, uh, we've got about a minute left, but I wanted to make sure we got to you. What's on your mind? Hi, good mm-hmm. morning. Thank you for taking me. I appreciate it. I have a, uh, My background is I am Jewish. My father and my uh, two other relatives walked out of the Holocaust, so death was an important conversation. We also followed along with filling out living wills and all the wishes that are supposed to be done and their stages in life, along with that in Judaism that you actually are able to follow and do things with. Mm. I'm also a neonatal nurse, and I believe that whether it's a newborn or any age, every hospital should have a palliative care conversation from the beginning, and that would mean that this is a potential chance that your child or your loved one might be at that end of the stage, and too many of the doctors are too worried about what the parents might think or what the families might think and lawsuits. It's very important to go through and actually discuss this with families so they have a better understanding. I'm also the person who went and was the overseer of two of my family members, my dad and my cousin, for power of attorney. And it's very difficult, but I prepared my children with books Hmm. and things when they were younger concerning death, and they would understand that Grandpa will die and how it was going to be very important to understand that stage of life. It is extremely important to converse with family members or friends, whoever you consider your family. Right. Uh, We have a bereavement committee and everything. I'm sorry that I don't have that much time. I I don't want to, I don't want to cut you off, but we are, we are running out of time. Uh, It was a fantastic topic. Thanks very much for the call and the thoughts. Rebecca Sofer and Mary Lynn Rush. Thank you for being here with us on Detroit today. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Mm-hmm. Come back tomorrow when Slate Supreme Court correspondent Dahlia Lithwick is going to join me in studio. And we're going to hear from the founders of Moms Demand Action and Get Her Elected about the role of women in political activism in 2019 and 2020. This is 101.9 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. Tomorrow.